0: Your employees expect top-tier medical benefits like comprehensive care access. But how can you balance these expectations against rising costs across your full benefits portfolio? Find savings and opportunities in your most highly utilized benefit, your pharmacy plan. Did you know that hospital employees fill 25% more prescriptions each year than other industries? How can you tell if all those prescriptions were needed or if you could have had significant cost savings? by filling at your own hospital pharmacies. Tap into these opportunities with an independent pharmacy benefits partner and solutions designed around your unique requirements and resources. Rx benefits provides pharmacy benefit strategies from expert advisory services to programs that leverage your hospital pharmacy's purchasing power, all while offering competitive benefits with award-winning customer service. We've been working with hospitals for over 15 years. And our clients range from rural and critical access hospitals to large health systems with healthcare-specific solutions that make the most of hospital assets and dispensing capabilities. Visit us at employers.rxbenefits.com or click the link in the show notes to learn how to boost your benefits with an optimized pharmacy plan. Hey guys, it's Elle here, the social media manager with The Bowen Luke Show. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and it's free. This creation tool allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, which is incredibly helpful with Bo being in Ohio and Luke being in Virginia right now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard across Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. And in the meantime, you make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We look forward to you joining us for season two.
1: Bo and Luke Nation, welcome to the Bo and Luke Show. I'm your co-host, Luke Kerrigan.
2: And I'm your other co-host, Bo Bravo. Folks, we
1: have an incredible episode for you today. Uh, It's very rare. I mean, we get some great guests on here, but this guy just... Absolutely blew me away in so many different ways. Rarely get starstruck on here, but this guy—I had like ten thousand questions that I didn't even get to answer. I really think everyone's going to enjoy it. But Bo, you had something planned out. Why don't you introduce Mike? I know you've known him for a little while.
2: Hey, Bo and Luke Nation, and this special edition of the Bo and Luke Show. JetBlue Airways co-founder Mike Barger. He talks crisis leadership, emergency preparedness, and he even talks what it's like to fly fighter jets at 800 miles per hour, 100 feet off the ground, or even this, imagine, 50,000 feet in the air. Mike is a former U.S. Navy fighter weapons school, which is also known as none other than Top Gun. He was a chief instructor and a pilot. Uh, Today, Mike shares all of his knowledge and experiences as the Executive Director of Strategy and Academic Innovation at the University of Michigan Stephen M. Ross School of Business. This is where Mike teaches a unique and wildly popular MBA course entitled High Stakes Leadership. How incredibly relevant is that during our current COVID-19 crisis? Bo and Luke Nation, get ready for an energetic episode with none other than Mike Barger. And for more episodes, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and listen on Apple Podcasts. And always, always, always feel free to write to Luke and I. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you choose, your choice.
1: We will respond. We'd love to keep the conversation going. So let's get after it. Let's talk to Mike.
2: So Mike, start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself, your your 60 to 120 second elevator pitch. And we are going to just hit you with question after question and just have a good conversation.
3: Sounds great. So uh, I grew up here in Michigan, always wanted to go to uh, University of Michigan to school, which is what I ended up doing. Uh, I uh, grew up in an airline family, so I started to fly when I was pretty young. So while I was an undergrad here at uh, Michigan, uh, helped uh, make some money during school by giving people flying lessons. That was fun. Wow. Uh, once I left uh, as an undergrad, here joined the Navy as a as a pilot with uh, uh, quite a few hours and instructor rating. Um, seemed like a logical path. The airlines weren't doing much back in the uh, uh, the early '80s, so uh, joined the Navy. Spent 13 years there flying F-18s. Uh, was a flight instructor most of my career. Uh, ran the uh, Top Gun school for three years, which was a lot of fun. It is uh, nothing like the movie, but it is a real place and. <laughs> Uh, did some, some pretty cool things out there. Uh, certainly, that's where I developed my passion for teaching in, uh, in dynamic, challenging, uh, high-speed environments. Uh, after 13 years in the Navy, I uh, had a conversation with my brother, Dave, who at the time was running the Newark hub for Continental Airlines. And we started to talk about what we could do together when I had had enough of the Navy and he'd had enough of, uh, of running Continental and who knew? But uh, not long after we started uh, talking about what we could do together, a gentleman by the name of David Nealman approached my brother Dave in Newark and said, "I want to start a Southwest of the Northeast, and mm-hmm. I would love you to run it." And my brother uh, reached right out to me. I happened to be on deployment on the uh, uh, the Eisenhower uh, CBN sixty nine at the time, uh, my first deployment with email. And uh, Dave said, uh, "When are you going to be in port?" I said, "I can't tell you, but if you're in Marseille somewhere around this date, maybe we can meet up." We decided, uh, we looked over the business plan, decided to join together, so we uh, were co-founders at JetBlue. Did that for 13 years, uh, ran the training function, ran operations and maintenance, so we got to see the intersection of learning and doing, uh, which further uh, excited me about this teaching in a dynamic environment. After 13 years at JetBlue, it seems to be the magic number, uh, joined a uh, a startup ed tech company called CorpU. In Philadelphia, we created a software platform to take business school content, put it into the uh, corporate environment, did really well there. Uh, and while I was there, I got to meet some folks at uh, Michigan Ross, the business school at University of Michigan, invited me to come and be on the faculty here. So I've been here for about three and a half years, uh, professor in the business administration area, uh, teaching uh, some business fundamental courses and some crisis leadership courses. So it's been a great ride.
2: Wow. So you have nine and a half years left. Yeah, nine I'm and a half, <laughs> half
3: years. Left. I figure it, uh, at at fifty five, so, I've got three or four more careers that I uh, that that's I can, right careers I can knock out.
2: Absolutely. Well, you, you just covered in uh, three minutes uh, probably days and days worth of stuff to talk about. So I would like you. To, I would like to go back real quick. And you said you've been flying for a long time. So did you start taking like private flying lessons when you were a teenager, somewhere in yeah. in Michigan or? How, yeah. yeah, so we grew up. Um,
3: uh, Dad uh, actually had a um, um, a part ownership of a little airport in Livingston County, uh, not too far away from the University of Michigan. So um, we uh, we had a hangar, and and really? uh, where he would spend his time rebuilding some airplanes. So he had an old Cessna one ninety five uh, that uh-huh. he was rebuilding, a beautiful airplane, and he. Uh, he gave me my first flying lessons and then turned me over to the local FBO there to finish it right. up. And, and so, yeah, so it was, it was flying early and have done it ever
2: since. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I grew up in Livingston County, so small world.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, so Livingston County Airport out there on the west side of the airport is, uh, my dad laid the runway out there. So,
2: isn't that something? It. So then, United States Navy, uh, were you going through? ROTC, while you were doing undergrad at the University of Michigan, or was it a direct commission? How did that transition?
3: Yeah, it was, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do while I was in school here at Michigan. I played a little bit of baseball. Uh, Barry Larkin was my year group, so I thought I was a pretty good ball player until I saw him play. Now he's in the Hall of Fame uh, and retired, which tells me two things. I'm old and wasn't very good. So so that part I got. Uh, And then, uh, so I was uh, a little bit of pre-med... uh, I studied economics and psychology and statistics. So I was kind of all over the board yeah, you, there. You
2: absolutely were. Yeah. Yep.
3: And uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but um, uh, but felt like I wanted to fly. Um, and so uh was leaning toward, I guess, the, the airlines was the logical choice. And during the mid 80s, it just wasn't a great time for the airlines. And so dad and I sat down and he said, you had go fly something fun for a while so mm-hmm. decided to go fly uh, fighters in the navy
2: wow did you get to choose what you got to fly in the navy or did, was there a qualification aspect to it yeah i how- think
3: the way most of the services do it still today this is they did it back in my day but you um you go in with uh you know for pilot training and then depending on how you perform you know, you get to rank your options and those that do better in class tend to get the, the options they want. So uh turns out when I went in, I had uh, a few thousand hours of flight time already. And most of my colleagues had never flown before. So, yeah. uh, so I actually scored pretty well in flight training, believe it or not. So, uh, wow. so I was able to kind of pick my own path, which was fun.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bo and Luke Nation, Discover your leadership edge with Edge Leadership Academy. Their expert coaching transforms high performers into influential leaders. Whether in business or athletics, they tailor their approach to your unique journey. Embrace their mentorship and workshops to elevate your leadership skills. Join the ranks of those who lead with confidence and purpose. Visit edgeleadershipacademy.com to start your transformation. Edge Leadership Academy, where leaders are made. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
2: Yeah, that that's interesting. I you know, I served in the army, and I was in an aviation unit one time, and it was all helicopters. And there was the VIP, it was the VIP unit that serviced uh, the Pentagon. So these Blackhawks were all leather, plush interior. You know, they were very very shiny green, forest green on the outside. But then it was the first time I realized that the army actually had jets and we had almost like vip corporate jets little small the smaller the smaller jets i don't know what they are but um some of our helicopter pilots were also pilot jet pilots i'm like wow i didn't even realize the army had that amazing yeah
1: mike mike that's like the coolest background by the way that i've ever heard of in my entire life (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's a, it is a unique career path. And uh, and when folks ask me about it, I do tell them that um, I don't know if any of those jobs I was necessarily looking for. I certainly didn't predict them. Um, I didn't really know how the Navy was going to work out. I knew I like to fly you know, small airplanes. Uh, I don't know if you ever really know if uh, the high speed fighter environment is right for you until you're in it. Uh, that worked out pretty well. Um, the JetBlue thing, how could you plan that? That just all sort of yeah. came together. Uh, and then, uh, you know, after 13 years of doing the JetBlue thing, it was just, it, it, the airlines are a, a fascinating business and we could spend several hours. Oh, talking absolutely. Business, but, um, it's a, uh, it, it's 24 seven, 365, as you can imagine. It's, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the times that, uh, that for most, uh, members of the workforce are not so busy. The weekends and the holidays are the busiest times yep. for you know the airlines. We decided to base our company in New York. So air traffic control or air traffic congestion, horrible weather most of the year, you know, super crowded. Um, you know, so all kinds of challenges. Um and after thirteen years of doing that, it was just it was just time to go do something else.
2: Yeah, I can I can imagine it's just it's so jam packed full of uh activity every day. Right. It is every day so- I have lots of questions on the whole jet blue, uh, experience and how you got there. But if we go back to the Navy for a second and you were, how did you get selected to join the top gun, um, program? Um, obviously you were pilot first, then instructor. Is that how it went or instructor first? Then, then you went, how'd that happen?
3: Yeah. So, uh, so of the 2% of the original top gun movie that was accurate, because yeah. um,
2: was there wasn't much more than that but, we'll, we'll uh, have to talk about the new one coming out and get your opinion yeah, on that yeah. too yeah
1: little, i want to know which parts podcast. were accurate what like when they so when when they get in that fight on the street and then you know they drive real fast on the motorcycle and then go back and make love at kelly mcgillis's house that's the two percent that's correct right of, of course yeah. whatever okay
3: whatever fantasy you'd like to believe <laughs> that's right we're, we're all in luke you're you're we're all in with that
1: um, and, and I do, I do got to call out. So it says you went in, in 1986. Yes. The movie Top Gun also released in 1986. Yes, it did. This couldn't hurt your uh, prospects at bars is all that I'm saying. Well,
3: it's, uh, it, it, it was a good time. There's a couple ways to think about that. Yes. It, uh, it was convenient on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, it was kind of crowded in the, uh, uh, in the recruiters' lounge, there for the Navy, right? They yeah, the, oh, that's best, true. Best recruiting Everybody. film uh, in the history of uh, of military, right? So I didn't yeah.
1: even think about that.
2: Everybody, yeah, want, was, every yeah, every teenager wanted to be a fighter pilot. Nineteen eighty
3: six. Yes, there was a period of time where, yes, indeed, and I, I would expect the same thing is going to happen when the new one comes out. Is the it is a super cool job? You know,
2: I had uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that because that was. Uh, within a year and a half after that was I was going to undergrad and I wanted to fly and I went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical Mm -hmm. University in Florida and somehow I didn't fly and I ended up studying business but that's a whole nother story um yeah yeah, but you're right that's when that was so I was probably influenced by that movie
3: yeah it was only uh, what 34 years ago so uh so there you go
2: yeah dating dating (laughs) yeah you're welcome so yeah, anyway, so the,
3: the, the way it worked was um, uh, what people don't know about the Top Gun school is it really is a, a train the trainer school. So they don't just send people there because they're the best fighter pilots and they're going to make them better. They actually use that school as a force multiplier for supporting training across all of the, the fleet units. That makes and sense. so a little bit of it is timing. Uh, you're typically in your first sea uh, tour for three years and they want someone with a little bit of experience before you go out to the get selected to go to the school. So mm-hmm. there is a window that squadrons are looking for to, to pick somebody. Um, so it's a little bit timing based, but it's also uh, stick and throttle based. So, you know, are you demonstrating, uh, you know, skill and it's also kind of your personality and and the way your squadron mates, uh, you know, might uh, be interested in learning from you. So the, those are kind of the aspects that they're looking at. So kind of like the movie, they, uh, you know, they, uh, the school reaches out to uh, actually an air wing. So it's a group of squadrons and says, OK, we need it's time for you to send somebody out to this particular class. And so I got selected to go out as a student. So you go first as a student, like they showed in the movie. Uh, you do the course, and, and it's certainly a, an under-the-microscope kind of course, so they're watching you the whole time. Uh, because it is a train-the-trainer course, uh, you know, half of the course is you learning how to fly or fight the way they mm-hmm. teach you, and the other half of the course is learning how to teach it back. So if there's not enough pressure going out and trying to, you know, survive and succeed in the course – Uh, imagine any class you've ever taken, the first half of the class, the professor is teaching you and the second half of the class, you're supposed to teach back to the professor. And that's what that school is all about. So that you're not only able to do the job when you get back to your squadron, but you're able to kind of teach what you learned or some part of what you learned. Um, so I did well enough that, uh, that a year down the road, um, uh, I, uh, uh, they reached out to me and said, we would like you to come back, uh, and, and teach. So got invited back. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've been, of course, not in fighter jets, but, uh, army, similar, similar concepts and different, different training programs that I went through. And I, I actually thought it was, a. um, You don't, you don't necessarily like it when you're going through it and when you're having to do it, but from a learning perspective, you know, you're sitting there learning and then all of a sudden they say, Hey, next Friday, you're going to teach this subject, Mm -hmm. right? So then you're up in front of the, your, your fellow students and you're giving the the course and, uh, yeah. And then you take that back with you. And I always liked the train, the trainer, um, concept and, and methodology for sure. Yeah, That's I don't awesome. think I really.
3: I don't think I appreciated it until I got back to the school as a new instructor uh, how committed the instructors are to the students being successful. I don't, until you're on the other side of that, you know, you 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 get caught up in the persona and the place is larger than you, and you just mm-hmm. feel like you're not worthy and go through all of that. Uh, but once you're on the staff side, it becomes clearer really quickly. That uh, the the faculty there are the students' biggest champions. You want the students to go out and do a great job, and you know, and get more confident and build their mm-hmm. skills. Uh, and I can think of a hundred times in while I was teaching out there that I would see a student do something that they couldn't do a week ago, and I'd literally be cheering in my cockpit <laughs> because they were doing such great work. And that's just. I think that just kind of summarizes how, how these, these kind of great training units yeah. and the Air Force has one and the Army has, you know, has several yeah. and the Army yeah. has several and all of the services have these, these training units. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't think the typical person appreciates how committed these people are to the success of their students, um, which is just a really cool aspect that I, I just didn't appreciate till I was doing it.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. So during your 13 years in the Navy how many uh, did you have real deployments or real combat missions that you had yeah
3: so I did uh, three six month uh, cruises so those are you know six straight months uh, you'll go 30 to 45 days never going to port and so you'll bob around in the big gray Winnebago for uh, you know 45 yeah. <laughs> days and and then you pull into port for a couple of days and you're back out doing it again. Uh, my very first one was uh, I was the squadron new guy for Desert Storm, so showed up at the squadron. Um, they were uh, just in their final uh, uh, preparation phase; of getting ready to go. Uh, we left uh, right after Christmas. the The ship pulled out of Norfolk, Virginia, and we got over there just in time to do a couple of training flights, and then it was war time. So wow, um, yeah. So that was that was busy. Uh, interestingly, Desert Storm. This is back in in ninety one. Uh, because we left on our normal deployment schedule, all the rest of the carriers that were part of that all came home and we were the ones that got to stay out on station for another four months. So, you know, we get mail every couple of days that you're yeah, this it's great back here. We're celebrating, you know, that, uh, we all did so well and you, you can't buy a beer and you can't, you know, well, by the time we got back four months later, everyone was over that. We were, we were moving out to something else, but uh, yeah,
2: but I remember that. <laughs> I'm sure. That's good stuff so how do you how do you make the leap luke any any more questions on on navy any more insights
1: um my like really all my questions are like questions that like an eight year old would have Mike so, <laughs> okay. so like all, all right, so I'm gonna ask a couple of them most fun plane to fly scariest plane to fly if you had to pick one of each
3: uh well, I think the most fun that I flew was probably the f sixteen n uh, it was an F-16 with um, that was designed really to be an, an adversary airplane. So it was designed to be a, ba- a bad guy simulator, um, and they took all of the kind of the the, the guts out of it because you didn't really need it to be combat ready. Which just meant that it was super light and absurdly fast, and so it's an airplane cool. that you could fly. You know, pretty easily, you could get up to 800, uh, 800 knots, which is you know nine hundred or so miles an hour. Uh, wow. We would fly that thing at you know fifty thousand plus feet. You'd fly it at, at Mach two. Uh, we had a we had a mission that we would fly uh, really low level, simulating a low fast uh, uh, you know threat aircraft, and so we'd fly it you know, 750 or 800 miles an hour at, you know, 50 feet off the ground. Um, oh my gosh. So that was just super cool. So that airplane was super fun to fly. Um, single engine, wouldn't want to flatten combat. I was an F-18 guy. So two engines. I like that idea. A little redundancy is good. Uh, scariest airplane to fly. Um, anything with a rotary wing, no offense. If the wings spin, uh, I really don't want to be in it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really that's good. good.
3: So you know, you know, the only reason that helicopters fly is because they're so ugly; the Earth repels them.
2: Oh, oh, I my got gosh, it. That's
1: amazing. That is.
2: <laughs> no, I'd say that's bringing back memories because during my time, it's it's funny. I always I count my blessings almost and count myself lucky. Um, the whole time I was in Iraq, I was never in a single convoy. Every, I mean, every single one. Well, every single time I traveled um i was always in a chopper mm-hmm. uh, um you know army warrant officers are the are most of your chopper pilots in the army and i was a warrant officer so i would call the i would call the f- flight deck at the ops center and talk to my fellow warrant officer buddy and i'd be manifested any, you know wherever i needed to go and i'd just go to the flight line jump on the flight and you know later that day i'd come back or whatever um yeah, but now listening to you, it's like whoo, I got probably lucky, <laughs> super lucky. I had, of, I had a ton of respect for those guys. They
3: are, um, uh, I think, like most military airplanes, they're not hard to fly. Just basic, get them in yeah. the air and fly them. Um, all complex equipment like that is really hard to fly, really, really well. And uh, and you could tell the ones that that were just really good at their job. And I have a, a lot of respect for those guys. So. Uh, I just like my wings to be fixed. That's all.
2: Yeah. I think one of, I don't know if I ever told you, Luke, um, it, it was like the experience of a lifetime for me. I sat in a simulator back in 2017 at fifth army, uh, in South Korea, my daughter who's in the army today. Uh, she's a captain. She hooked me up with this, uh, old retired warrant officer. And he was the flight chief flight instructor, uh, for Chinooks, which now you got two rotors right front and back. But we, all it was was a simulator. But it felt so real to me, you know? I'm like, man, this is, I'm flying a helicopter. Not really, but I, but it <laughs> felt like it. It was, you know, it was so real. But I remember him saying, he said, you know, flying a helicopter is the easiest thing to do. He goes, it's so simple. It, it's the responding to crap that happens yep. while you're flying it, right? The weather, some type of you know, piece of equipment goes out while you're flying it and it's yeah. having all that knowledge in your head. Like what in the world do you do when, cause it's not meant to glide, right? Yeah. It's not no. going to glide. No. <laughs> it's just going to dr- drop like a rock. Yeah. So I always found that fascinating. That's good stuff. Yeah.
3: Well, I think that's all that's consistent as we, as we make the leap into other topics here, but consistent yeah. with the whole notion of, uh, of uh, no plan with standing contact with the enemy. Right. I think right. flying, operating complex equipment is the same thing is the, you know, if you didn't have to do it in a, in a complex environment where things are likely to, to right. go sideways. Um, yeah. It's not hard to, you know, put the thing in drive and, you know, exactly. push it out on the gas and go, I mean, it's super right. easy. Um, but, <laughs> but life gets in the way, right? right? Stuff gets in the way and things don't work the way you plan them to. And so, exactly, you know, that's, that's what makes it a challenge.
2: Right. So you're sitting down with your brother um, and with Dave Nealman. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about I was thinking about this today in preparation for for this episode. I don't think I've ever asked you this in the past. Um, you think about people having ideas. And I think you gave me a quote for the book about all startups start with an idea. Right. It's very simple. But when you're thinking about when you were thinking about uh, your pilot, your brother was at an airline did it ever like dawn on you that maybe we start a little charter jet service <laughs> or we do something a little smaller? I mean, you guys went, you went straight for the, I mean, you sh- went straight for the gusto. It's like, no, we're starting an airline. That yeah, that's, well, that's a big, that just seems like a big step.
1: Wait, what was the word? The Southwest of the Northeast? Yeah, southwest. Yeah. yeah.
3: Wow. wow. <laughs> and that really Luke was the, that was where it started. So, um, you know, Dave. Dave was living in uh, New York, and you know, I was a Navy Top Gun guy. So the whole notion of go big or go home, you know, wasn't lost on us. So that that yeah. was easy. Um, Neilman, Dave Neilman, uh, who I love to death and and respect like no other, a, a, a super dedicated big thinker, uh, had run a, a small airline out in Salt Lake City called Morris Air. It had done pretty well. Um, was an early creator, adopter of e-ticketing. And so he was an idea guy. Uh, Southwest loved what they were doing so much. They actually bought them. It was the first airline that Southwest had ever bought. And so David had a, he was a big airline thinker. Now, David was Mormon from Salt Lake City. He, you know, got to put on the executive planning committee with Herb Kelleher, a kind of a whiskey drinking Texan gunslinging. And, you know, so the little bit of a personality clash there, I think maybe. So maybe that didn't quite go so well. So he wasn't there very long. Um, but as soon as when he, um, when he left, when David, he sold his company to Southwest in I think 92 ish, uh, in 93, uh, as part of the, uh, the executive planning committee he was on, it was decided that he would leave Southwest when he left to collect his equity that he had gotten as part of the, you know, the, the purchase of his prior airline, he had assigned a five-year non-compete. So he literally uh-huh. spent, uh, you know, five years tr- thinking through what a Southwest of the Northeast could be. So when he approached my brother, Dave, uh, who then brought it to me, it was a pretty well-baked business plan. So it was an uh-huh. idea and it gotcha. was very southwesty of the northeast. I mean, that was the best way to describe where it started on paper. Um, and then it just became, you know, the the what are the things we need to do to get the right leadership team assembled to figure out, you know, what our business plan really looks like. Where are we going to operate? What kind of equipment? What are what's unique about our you know our offering to a market that seems pretty saturated? Um, and this, so that's where we went. I mean, that was kind of business model 101.
2: Yeah, wow. so what what comes first or or do they or you're working on them all at the same time? Is it the plane, the terminal, or the routes? Because you gotta have all three, right? Yeah, so so the interesting thing about the airline
3: industry is there there are very few barriers to entry. Uh, there's really? a lot of old airplanes sitting around. you can you can get money. Um, in just about any environment you can get money. even today with covid nineteen and all the things that are going right. on, you know, banks are still trying to make money available to businesses, right? Um, so it's actually harder to get out of the airline business once you're in it than to get in it. But at wow. the time, uh, at the time, we were thinking, well, we've got a we've got a business plan. That business plan talks about things like, where do we want to base ourselves? Uh, where would we fly from that base? So the early plan looked at, you know, Boston and New York and Washington and Chicago. You know, it's we, it was definitely going to be somewhere in the Northeast because the Northeast just didn't have low fare, high frequency service like the Southwest did. I mean, that, the, the Southwest effect was, you know, very well known out in the Southwest. Uh, by the way, Southwest Airlines didn't fly anywhere in the Northeast when we started. They weren't even... Really east of the Mississippi, they were all kind of out west. So, um, so we we had an idea of places that we might want to to base ourselves and fly to. We had an idea of the size of the airplane that we wanted. So, something set larger mid level seven thirty seven ish uh, Airbus had an A three twenty equivalent. Those were really the only two players in the in the market. So, all right, so it's one or the other for your equipment, and then it's a matter of how are we going to differentiate ourselves? Are we just going to kind of fly on top of other people and see if we can look better or look cooler? Or, you know, we tell everyone we got a Top Gun guy and they'll just all come flying. I don't know what it is. So it was us thinking through the, Hey, getting, getting a base is easy. Getting routes is actually pretty easy. Uh, getting approval from the FAA. If you've got your stuff together is not hard. They just want to see that you're thoughtful and you got a plan and that you, you know, you can be yeah. safe. Um so the challenge really was who are the group of folks that we're going to pull together to start this thing? Because you really need a leadership team that can work together, that's aligned on the plan and the vision and the values and things that I'm sure we will talk about in this yeah. podcast. Um, that's a super important, uh, you know, starting thing. Um, uh-huh. And then it's a okay, let's rip apart this business model and see where are those places that we really can perform exceptionally well. And really differentiate ourselves in the market. And if you want to take a Jim Collins hedgehog concept, it's okay. Then where can we make money, right? Yeah. Difference, awesome revenue.
2: Hedgehog, there right you in go. Middle. Right in the middle. Yep. You know that would be Luke. Could you imagine the uh, the passengers on the plane when Captain Mike Barger makes his announcement? And he says, "Hey guys, you know I spent several years in the Navy, Top Gun, uh, and chief instructor and pilot. If if we happen to make a hard bank left or hard bank right that's just me having fun so just hold on i'll give you a little navy experience while we fly the friendly jet blue skies Uh, that that would be fantastic i would
1: pay extra i'd pay extra for a (laughs) loop-de-loop
0: yeah
2: yeah You,
3: you say you would it sounds like a good idea um i haven't met too many uh airline passengers that that would like to hear over the pa hey ladies and gentlemen um Uh, it's going to be a while to get into JFK today, but uh, we could try something I've never tried before and we might get in a little sooner. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's punch it. We'll sit here and relax for a while. Can I have another, you know, Coke? And that's
1: yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hey, hey, folks, we're going for the uh, airspeed record today. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, before we get into, um, you know, the culture and everything else, I just want to ask him, maybe you could address like the younger listeners out there, too. So everything you're doing as I'm looking at your background and everything is just like the most risky things that I've ever seen in my entire life. But there's a couple of things I noticed. Number one, you've been wildly successful at all of them and from talking to you i'm not sure if you actually think that these are risky when you're doing (laughs) so so what's so what's your question so i guess could you could i guess it's more of like could you uh maybe tell the listeners you know how you're taking these risks and being so successful with them because i'm a risk taker myself i fail all the time yeah. Like how are you how are you taking big risks with like big companies like this? You know, either it's a big company or being, you know, a top gun instructor and being so successful at them. I think sometimes it's like a mountain to climb for someone just to take that leap to have a risk.
3: Yeah, I think um I think when most people look at uh at somebody else taking risk that it's not obvious at first glance all of the foundational work that's gone into you know how they're managing the risks that they're taking. So, you know, so if I'm flying in a fighter at, uh, you know, 100 feet off the ground at 800 miles an hour or at 50,000 feet, um I to to somebody that doesn't know how that all works, it looks pretty scary. To someone that's in the, you know, that's in the airplane flying, I don't know, it's it's just kind of like driving your car. It's just the speedometer numbers on the speedometer are just numbers and you just kind of get used to it. So, but it's not that you just jump into it and wing it and see how it goes. It's, uh, you know, the the riskier the endeavor, the more planning that needs to go into it, the more thoughtful you need to be about the team that you're working with, about uh, kind of acknowledging the risks that you're taking on and deciding which ones are, you know, that you need to take care of right now, which ones are things you can deal with kind of uh, on the fly um, but it really, it really does come down to being really thoughtful about what you're doing, um, your ability to do it, your ability to focus on, you know, being safe or taking care of yourself, um, and and it just and it really doesn't feel that terribly risky to me, or to anyone that does that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I think oh, if you talk makes- to any, pretty much any combat veteran in any one of the services. They'll tell you in combat, not that it's not scary because we all get, you know, we all get scared and we all get anxious and we're all nervous. Um, but you very quickly fall back on the training that you've gotten, the teammates that you're working with, the mission that you're set, you're, you've set out to accomplish. And it really does put you into a mindset of, you know, we, we got a job to do and we'll, it'll, it'll, it'll just work out. Yeah. I mean, I, it just, it just does. Right. And so, uh, so I think it does come down to just, you know, it's mindset and preparation and, uh, and teamwork.
2: There you have it.
3: There you have
2: it. Yeah. There you have it. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that's kind of a, uh, that's a good lead into, um, one of the things I also wanted to talk with you about because the country, you mentioned it earlier. We're going through the COVID 19 pandemic. Every, everybody's, I don't know anybody who hasn't been impacted in, in some way. Right. Even if, Even if like yourself now as a professor and all of a sudden you're, you're teaching from home every day, right? Mm -hmm. That's not something you started the semester thinking would happen back in early January, but now, now you're in it. One of the things, Mike, that you, you write about and you speak about, uh, is the, the volatility, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments. VUCA, Um, VUCA. very familiar in the military world. You kind of explained it there when you train for it and your values, you know your military values of train, train as you fight. People that have that experience are, are used to those types of things, right? And and, but that's not the case, in in corporate America, if you will. Like mm-hmm. that that's not always present. And then, you know, it's like, bam, lightning bolt hit hit, and now it's not just like you experienced um, during nine eleven, and you're with uh, JetBlue, and you have this crisis happening. Um, now it's crisis for almost everybody. Right? About every business is, is feeling this in some way, shape, or form. So let's get into that, if, if, you, if, if you will. Sure. Uh, and it doesn't have to be question based. It's just, you know, what are you thinking today about, about businesses and based on your experience uh, and how, you know, for the listeners, I'll, I'll pause for a second. I first heard Mike, uh, when it, the very first time I met Mike, he was doing a fireside chat at Ross Business School, um, where I was at as a student. Um, and he talked about his time. Uh, at JetBlue, when nine eleven the terrorist attacks of nine eleven happened and, and how how you got through all that, if you could give us a few minutes on that, Mike, and then uh, you know, whatever advice you could give to people today dealing with this pandemic and the crisis in their businesses, we're all ears because so I think there's yeah. a lot of a lot of people that could really use that type of wisdom and and guidance uh, at this moment in time.
3: Well, I certainly think that, uh, that this, this notion of the, the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world, uh, something that we in the military have been talking about for a long time, as you mentioned. Um, the idea, the original idea of this VUCA environment is just, um, uh, things are, are becoming so complex. Systems are operating faster than we know what to do with the data that comes back from them. Um, uh, we, it's hard for us to estimate the kind of the, the volatility of the behaviors that we execute or the actions that we take. It's just, there, there's just so much uncertainty around the, the combat battlefield today. And for Mm -hmm. the last couple of decades, the business environment actually feels the same these days, right? So every Every decision we make, there are question marks about, well, I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how customers are going to react. I wonder if that, that thing we just created is going to work the way we thought it would. Um, I wonder what our competitors are going to do. I wonder what changes in technology are going to do to impact our business model. So all of those kind of, are kind of originally conceptualized as military concepts have now manifested themselves in the business world. And so I think the first part of, of being ready for a crisis is just acknowledging that it's not an if anymore, it's a when, right? So I think you just, as a as a leader, you have to start thinking about, it's not, can I be lucky enough to just steer around these things for my whole career, or maybe it won't happen to me. It's going to. the The nature of the business environment says it's going to be something. It's going to be a product failure. It's going to be a cash shortage. It's going to be a Uh, an international event of some sort. It's going to be a pandemic. It's going to be something. Some things you can control, some things you can't, but you will find yourself leading a team in an environment where, you know, where A, uh, a a definitive change is going to happen as a result of this thing. And B, the results are probably not going to be very desirable, right? So those are a couple of just realities of the the business environment the crisis environment. So so I think step 1 is as a leader you just have to acknowledge that it's not a it's not an if it's a when. And if it is a when, are there some things that I can do to better prepare myself, my team, uh my organization to deal with those things? And so, you know, looking back on 9/11 and the JetBlue story, the first important I think fact for your audience is that every airline is not only required to have a, a an emergency response plan but they take that very seriously and the airlines practice you know dealing with crises all the time it's not hard to imagine that an airline would spend you know a day or two you know every quarter or every 6 months thinking about or pulling the leadership team together what happens if we run an airplane off the end of the runway what happens if you know someone gets injured on the ramp at the airport what happens if there's a security event and mm-hmm. one of our large airports, any of those things, they're not that hard to imagine. Right. We've right. seen. them, So it's only it only makes sense to think that, a, that an airline crisis response team would be putting together kind of generic plans to deal with those kinds of categories of things. Mm-hmm. So look, you know, turn back the clock to 9-11. Um, we certainly didn't have a 9-11 plan in our crisis response book. Um, But we did have a set of crisis kind of roles and responsibilities and procedures and a place to execute them, an emergency command center that I happen to be uh, that I to be in charge of at JetBlue. So that when 9-11 happened, um, we just we announced that we were activating our emergency command center. All of the JetBlue executives came to their, you know, their workstations. They pulled out their emergency response binders. And we just started to work through the, you know, here's what we're supposed to do. Pretty much in any crisis, we have to communicate with these people. We have to make sure this is happening. We have to make sure that we've, you know, that we've talked to that person or turned that thing off or on. So everyone had a set of responsibilities. And I think that's, you know, going back to Luke, your question about kind of being prepared for these risky kinds of things, you know, part of that is, well, let's think through generically. Of course, we don't want these to happen and we're not mm-hmm. expecting them to, but in the off chance that they do, we got a couple options to deal with it. We can either just wing it when it happens and see how it goes, um, which is not a good plan, or we can kind of prepare the team to have to deal with them. And that's exactly how
2: 9-11 played out. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. <laughs> So how's
1: that saying go? Is it that people don't rise to the expectations; they fall to their training? So uh,
3: heard that yeah. Well, it's, I, I I do think that um, that in um, in a high pressure environment, uh, and this is the way I always describe. Uh, I, I teach a critical thinking and decision making uh, course at Michigan, and I, I I do like to use the kind of uh, fighter uh, aircraft analogy where I talk about. How um, things are happening at pretty high speed when you're pointed at uh, at an oppose, at a threat, and you're, you know, pointing at each other and getting closer together. And generally, fighters today operate, you know, somewhere six, 700 miles an hour, which means when you're pointed at each other and you're 40 miles away from each other, in one minute, you're now 20 minute miles away from each other. And in That's two minutes, crazy. you're next to each other. And so you have, you have very little time to process the world and all the things that are going on around you. And so um, what that means, the way I interpret that as, a, as, a, as an educator, is that we better make sure that the, blo- the blocking and tackling fundamentals that we're responsible for don't require any processing time because we need all the processing time we can get to deal with all of the unknowns, the wild cards that we didn't see coming, and if I'm if I'm closing on a threat at uh, at a mile every three seconds, which is how that equates, um, I don't have time to think about what does this button do or where am I supposed to be or who am I supposed to be talking to? We need to have all that stuff wired so that mm-hmm. we can deal with the complex stuff. And I think the business environment is exactly the same thing today. I think, the you know, when you find yourself in, a, in a, some sort of major disruption, you do not have time. To, to think about now or debate the basics, the blocking and tackling. You have to have those set so that you can, you know, who's supposed to be where? Let's talk about who we should bring to the office. If you're talking about who should come to the office, you're, you're, you're already halfway done. That should be, uh, you know, that should be a send out the, the pre-planned email or, or alert, you know, the, the Amber alert equivalent or whatever. Send that out to the crisis response team they need to be here in the next three minutes or 30 minutes or whatever you have planned. We don't have time to think about that. You know, what are the circumstances? Who got hurt? Who was at fault? What do we need to do to put the, you know, to extinguish the the fire? Those are the, those are the advanced things you need to be thinking about not the basic blocking tackle.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect it, sense. it always uh, <clears throat> amazes me in the business world compared to the sports world. I see you're a Red Wings fan. Mm-hmm. He's dead. Uh, For the listeners, he's got an amazing Red Wings uh, water mug that looks really great, (laughs) by the way. But uh, in sports, you practice all the time. When you go to play a game, that is like the the shortest time in your career is actually playing games. You practice and practice and practice. Now we get to the business world. It's completely opposite. It seems like all we do is we play games Mm -hmm. and then we train just like, you know, 1% of the time, Mm -hmm. which, you know, if you think about it, like. The Red Wings would be terrible if they just trained, you know, once every few months and then decided that they're just going to show up and play.
3: Well, they kind of um, look like they've been doing that lately. Maybe that's,
1: <laughs> Maybe that's more practice. We you're figured just, it out.
2: We just figured it out. Yep. Right.
1: But it does shock me that in the business world, it's like that. And I can't tell you how many companies I've worked for. I've been in sales my entire life. So salespeople is the epitome of of we practice like once every six months and usually it's like a couple day workshop. And then we just kind of learn as we go when the stakes are high. It's just so weird to me that the business world doesn't adapt that training mentality like the sports world does, especially when you see those results.
3: Yeah, it's an investment, right? And from, you know, you put your business leader hat on and it's, it's always a question of, you know, we've got limited resources, time, money, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, some roles are you know they turn over more than other roles, so new people are coming in. So, so trying to find the sweet spot of what's the right investment to make in development so that we get a return on the investment, so that people are really good at their jobs, so they stay longer. It's a it is a pretty complex puzzle. Now we're kind of getting into Bo's area of expertise here with just you know human capital management, but but that's really kind of the the big question mark is it is a question of investing limited resources in the best way that you can.
2: And I think. Um... Luke and I are on a mission, Mike, to uh, the whole part of this podcast. And the reason we do it is guests like yourself who've been on the show uh, is to help inspire people to do better. So when when listen for all of our listeners, when you're when you're hearing Mike and you're talking and he's talking about um, the blocking and tackling and and when crisis happens, it's, it's not the time to try and figure things out. And and then we're saying, well, there aren't businesses don't have enough resources. They're not investing in in all of that. So I think that's where it comes back to uh, individual responsibility. And uh, whether, whether you're the, a small business owner or you happen to have a leadership position in a small or mid-sized business, seeking out your own self-development, and whether that's going back to school, education, reading, listening to podcasts like the Bo and Luke show, and just doing the things you need to do so that even if your company's not investing in you, you're investing in yourself. Mm -hmm. So that, so that you are prepared because that preparedness, it shouldn't take the FAA saying you're required to have an emergency response plan to, to, to say, Hey, I own a business. I'm responsible, not just the customers, but I have employees. I have benefits. I need to keep paying. You shouldn't need someone to tell you, you have to, you have to be ready to respond to an Mm -hmm. emergency, which comes back to what we've talked about numerous times is what are your values? How, you know, how does that involve, how does that impact your leadership? Uh, on the culture of your company uh, and so forth. So everything you just said, you know, for our listeners, you should, again, we say it all the time, you should hit the pause button, rewind, listen to it again, write it down and take action, right? It's all about action and doing. Yeah. yeah. I think
3: sometimes it's um, just thinking about how the different areas we need to develop. It's such a big kind of open, you know, green field that it can be really hard to decide where should I invest my time. And then the kind of the crisis response area, and it's it's really hard to get companies to think about what they would do in the crisis response area because, A, um, the really big ones are pretty rare. And so you have to get a group of executives that agree, yeah, it's it's not very likely, but if it did happen, it would be bad, so we should spend some time on it. Um, they're all snowflakes. So they're all going to be different. So so you can't plan for exactly, hey, if we're going to have a crisis, I know it's going to be exactly this thing. So it's hard to build a plan around a thing because it's not going to be a thing. It's going to be one of maybe a dozen potential different things. And yeah. within that dozen, there's going to be an infinite number of flavors of any one of the dozen. Um, so what I suggest to leaders that are just, that are thinking about crisis response and Mike says it's gonna. It's a when, not an if. How do I even start thinking about that? What I suggest that people do is look at their primary business, okay, whatever business that they're in, and pick something that they've seen in the news or that they've worried about at some point or another that they think, you know, if this thing happened at our company, it'd be really bad. Now, it could be maybe somebody, you know, gets injured seriously on the job. Maybe it's some sort of a... You know, a terrorist thing, maybe it's a pandemic and people can't come to work, whatever it is. But my suggestion is take that one thing and pull together a group of leaders at your company and just have a conversation about what would we do? Full transparency, rank, leave rank at the door. Let's just talk through this thing. If this thing happened and we've seen it happen in other places, if it happened here, what would we do? And in 99 plus percent of the cases, people around the table would look at each other and say, I, I don't know. We, would we (laughs) call somebody? Would we? Well, that to me is the perfect place to say, all right. So can we all agree that if this thing happened, it would be a horror show? Yes. Okay. So does it make sense then to start to sketch together a way that we might deal with this kind of thing? And that's just a really good way to get started. And I tell you all that to not only make a public service announcement about some crisis preparedness, um, but I think that's true with just about any capability that we are thinking about developing as a leader is start with an acknowledgement that if I were expected to perform in this area or my team needed me or my my partner or spouse needed me or my family needed me, could I execute in a way that I felt good about? And if you can kind of wrap it in that, that now gives you, in my experience, that gives you that little extra bit of motivation to follow through on it. So at that point, yeah. it's not a, it's not just a hobby or an interest anymore. Now right. it's more like a calling. I got I got to get better at this.
2: Yep, Other people for maybe. sure. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder. I was just reading today because uh, I had not been uh, up to speed on everything that uh, your your governor. Uh, is putting in in place Governor uh, Whitmer for Michigan, um, and I just read today, and, and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm imagining, and this, I was imagining that exact thing all day that these exact conversations are happening because the garden centers now are shut down and the agriculture industry in Michigan because the garden centers can't sell their can't sell their flowered plants, and this is the best time of their business season, and Michigan's the third ranked, um state in the country for this, for the agriculture, for the, all the plants and trees and flowers and shrubs and everything that, uh, these garden centers sell. And now how many of them were expecting that they would be next to get shut down? Probably very few of them. Yeah, And, and I can, I can envision those conversations like, Oh, you know, what do we do? What are we going to do? How are we going to salvage this? And not prepared. Um,
3: so beyond the, the, obviously just horrible loss of life that, that we're all going to have to live through, uh, here, yeah. it is just horrific. It um, is. I do tend to, to have, uh, I don't know, I have been accused of having an irrational sense of hope. So I do <laughs> tend to, to be a glasses half full kind of guy. Uh-huh. Uh, and as a, uh, as someone who really is passionate about education, particularly in complex kind of difficult environments, I see lots of silver linings coming out of this It's again, you know, we need to get this thing nailed down we need to, you know, it shouldn't cost us lives to have silver linings, but you know, it is what it is and we're trying to work through it. But, but I do think things like these, you know, garden centers that, that, and the state working together to recognize that if we, if something happens, if there's a flare up of this thing a year from now, or if the next thing that happens that right. for me being able to open the garden centers, the state goes bankrupt in six months. So that we can't have that. So, yeah. so what are some things we can put in place now? It won't be COVID-19 again, because we'll figure that one out. But if it's COVID-20 or- right.
0: It'll be now, something.
3: Um, Locusts, you know, I don't know, whatever it happens to be. Um, we should be thinking about these, you know, not so obscure that it couldn't happen, but hey, if, if this category of things happened, what would we do? And if the answer is we have no idea, I think it's a whole different conversation about investments. Like Luke, we were talking about a minute ago. It's the yeah, you know, how do you how do you optimize the investment? Safety has always been a really hard thing for organizations to get resources for, because mm-hmm. in most cases, and airlines are a great example it's kind of a binary thing. It's either you're safe or you're not. There's not much of a middle ground there. So we either crashed an airplane or we didn't. And if we didn't, then there's this kind of perception that everything's good. And when the safety group goes to the the finance group and says, hey, we'd like to set, you know, a million dollars aside next year for safety training. You know, what does the finance person say? Yeah, that's like, no way. Right, I'm
2: with that's, you. Right? You know, well, I think that's, the only place I've seen in in my career, thirty years in working life where there's been a standards and safety office was in the was in the military and the aviation unit. Yeah, I mean that was a, a dedicated team uh, to safety, and it's always cracked me up. And you see, um, uh, like you'll see delivery trucks, box trucks, and you'll be behind them driving, and they have a big big uh sign on the back of the truck and it says safety is my goal. I'm like, so if safety is a goal, does that mean you're not being safe, right? <laughs> yeah. Or is safety is safety your standard because yeah. you're either you're either safe or you're not safe as well, yeah. like you just said, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah, so what's going on with your students at the university and how are the classes coming along and trying to so how are you personally handling this and the effectiveness of Delivering your coursework uh, in things just like this, and crisis management, and and so forth. How's how's that coming along? How are my well,
3: so yeah so uh, so so for me so I teach a crisis leadership course. Yeah. Okay. Now here we are in the midst of a crisis. So so that um, uh, actually the the hardest thing about teaching that course is is not slipping into current events every minute that we're together as a group. You know, we're I trying bet. to explore other types of crisis and it keeps coming back to, yeah, but let's talk about today.
2: Yeah, okay.
3: sure. Um, so I teach a crisis leadership course and I, I ran an education technology company for seven years that took, you know, business school content and delivered it virtually to businesses. So, so I'm right. sort of feeling right at home here. Um, it doesn't make it any more, you know, comfortable or doesn't make me happy about what's happening with, you know, with, with human lives, but, mm-hmm. but from a, how are you dealing with this perspective? It's all right. So it's kind of right in my bread basket. So, you know, let's just kind of make this thing work. Um, I think from a student perspective, it has been, um, uh, they've been uh, incredible. Uh, they've been remarkably resilient. Uh, all of the things that we would expect from a stakeholder group like students, we've been hearing back from them. So things like, um, we wish you were you're know, communicating with us more. We wish you were communicating us uh, more often. Uh, mm-hmm. We wish you were being a little more directive. We wish you were telling us what was going on. We want you to tell us that everything is going to be okay, but then we want you to tell us kind of why and when's this thing <laughs> over, you know, so all of the, the things we talk about in the crisis leadership course are all playing out now the uh, i had a wonderful conversation with my crisis leadership class a couple of weeks ago and and we were talking about just this this crisis communication challenge and so right. what they all said as a group is we feel really underinformed with what's going on and from my, and i said you know it's really interesting because as a member of the leadership team at the business school we are talking about caring for students 3 to 4 hours every day 7 days a week Wow. You are half of my job now is working with my colleagues on how to make sure that you're safe, that you're well, that you're getting, uh, you're making progress on the education that you've committed to. And we're living up right. to our promise, uh, writing communications to you, sending them to half of my job, half of the leadership team at Rod. This is all, this is what we're doing half the time. And wow. while I'm hearing 60 of you tell me, is how disappointed you are, and how little attention we're paying to you, and it's just a fascinating—you know—it's—it's yeah. just—it's not synced properly. it's not. Properly. Yeah, it's and not. so we talked about that, and and out of that conversation came something that uh, that we've been using at Rossi's last couple of weeks, and that's the notion that uh, that in a crisis, no news is news. And what I mean by that is that in this day of exploding email boxes and everyone's just inundated with stuff all over the place, is that we as leaders have now started to to shy away from sending out anything that we think is just redundant or won't get the attention that it needs or isn't worth attention. And so we've now slipped into this period where we're we're a little reluctant to send out information. And what and a little math problem that that became really clear in my head as my students were telling me about how poorly we were communicating is I, I was thinking to the number of times in my uh, leadership team uh, meetings that folks that we specifically talked about the fact that, well, we could send something out today, but not really much has changed from yesterday. And yesterday's message, you everybody got it. And today there's not really much of a change. So let's wait till tomorrow to send out the next one and what my students were telling me, and I think this will resonate with all of us, is that when things are moving as fast as this COVID crisis has moved, we all yeah. assume that new stuff is available almost every minute. Yeah. So when you're a stakeholder that's waiting for kind uh, of information from somebody else, and you're not hearing mm-hmm. from them, you immediately start to assume they're not sharing. They just don't want to share with me. There, there's yeah. something bad happening. I, I they would if there. I know there's news to share and. And they're not telling me. So so two, two components to this I want to talk about briefly, unless you think I'm just going no, on. No, oh, I
1: like this. I love this it. good.
3: Angle one is as a leadership team during a crisis, if there is nothing new to share, you need to tell your stakeholders there is nothing new to share. You need to establish yourself as the primary, or your team, your leadership team, yeah. the primary source of facts, Right. When there is stuff to share, I'm going to share it. When there is nothing new to share, I will tell you there is nothing new to share. I am, we, I, you know, the team, we are your source of facts because that's angle A. Angle B is we are wired when we get anxious to go find information anywhere we can find it. And so when we're not hearing things from where we want to hear them, we will go find them somewhere else. So we'll go to the Internet. We'll go to social media. We'll go wherever. And I uh, I use these uh, these images. In fact, I, I gave a webinar last week on crisis leadership. And one of the images I used was uh, a, a snapshot of a USA Today uh, article that talked about how the coronavirus came from Corona beer. Right. That's clearly where it came from. And yeah. it's all over the internet. If you look at it, it's like clearly, you know. So I asked the question in my webinar: So is the coronavirus actually a, a kind of a double whammy crisis for Corona beer? And folks respond with their you know thumbs down. No, that's silly. People don't believe stuff like that. And uh-huh. then I have this, these five pictures of these liquor store kind of beer shelves where there is nothing—totally bare shelves everywhere except for the Corona beer section, which is full of Corona beer because people wow. aren't buying it because they've decided that coronavirus comes from Corona beer. It's just fascinating. So you just put yeah. this kind of human nature together with kind of expectations in a crisis. And that to me, the answer is as the leadership team in a crisis, you have to own the being the source of facts. You know, you have to be the one standing up in front of folks saying, um, here is what's going on now. It also means as a crisis leader that um if you're going to commit to that kind of a communications tempo, then you better get comfortable with two other facts. One is um, you're never going to have as much information as you wish you did. So you're not going to have all of the facts. So you're going to have to kind of make some statements and some commitments on very limited information, which is not natural for us as leaders. And the right. second thing you better get used to is tomorrow you're going to change what you said you thought you understood today. Yeah. Because you're going to learn more. Yeah. So you don't, if you're not comfortable standing up in front of a group and saying, I wish I knew more, but I don't. But I want to, we as a leadership team want to own being the kind of center of information. So here's what we know today. Here's what we're going to do based on what we know today. And when I learn more tomorrow, we're going to come back. We're going to tell you what we know and we're probably going to have to change some things because we're going to know more. And that's just a really uncomfortable place for leaders. I think there's a little, there's this expectation from a lot of leaders that when you stand up and talk to the team, they're, whatever you say has got to be true. And, you know, you're, you're responsible for being, uh, you know, the truth and in a crisis doesn't work that way.
2: No, I agree.
1: That's awesome. So how about the, be- the benefits of that? Right. Because now you talk about like, yeah, it's really tough to put that out every single day, but I'm thinking, you know, for a lot of companies that are out there right now, you hit the nail on the head. People are nervous. It's that no news is news at this point. I wonder how much like how much it correlates with productivity if you were to send out an update every single morning saying, you know what? We don't know what's going what's going to happen tomorrow, but today this is still the plan, it's the same as yesterday. Everybody's job is safe today and here's how we're going to be productive. I I bet the benefits of like that are insane compared to just doing it once every week or two or whenever there's a big announcement. Well,
3: I'm sure. I I get I've been asked lately, you know, are you seeing Somebody or some groups that are doing a particularly good job at uh, at this, and I actually uh, I think Governor Cuomo is doing a really good job. I think in the spirit of just getting out there, it's it's the same time every day. He's a little gabby for me, you know. Mm-hmm. He's a he's sure a good character, but when it really comes down to what does stakeholders want to know, they wanna they want to know that there's a place that they can tune in to get whatever the latest latest is. In a way that doesn't feel too spun, right? It feels like, Hey, here's from my heart and soul. And I think we all as, um, uh, you know, when you, when you become a leader at every level, I think you do get more sensitive to and dialed into kind of people's kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, um, uh, just their, their integrity, you know, your integrity meter, you know, is just kind of at a heightened sensitivity. And so, you know, so I watched Governor Cuomo. And, uh, and I am convinced that what he's telling us is what he believes. It's the latest information that he has. He does cram, I think, 30 minutes of information into 90 minutes, but you know, some of us have a gift of doing that. But I think there is some magic in this idea that every day at this time I can dial in and get what I think is the latest information and I don't have to look elsewhere for it. Yeah. I'm going to get it.
1: You're absolutely right. And everyone in the country is really looking towards him and looking up to him at this point. It's almost unified things where whether you're in michigan or illinois or even texas you're kind of looking to governor cuomo at this point for the information you know just new york has almost spread to the rest of the country yeah. at this point just yeah. with those updates yeah and sadly
3: and sadly it's um you know it uh when you put it up against some of the other things that we're seeing on a regular basis it 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 does kind of raise some questions about just how we do things around here right so it's a uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh,
1: comparison. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, you're blowing <laughs> my mind right now, Mike. This is good stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's fantastic stuff, and you're right. It's the kind of stuff you could just sit here all night and and chat about for sure. Um, yeah, I've always thought that uh, you know the more transparent you can be as a leader, the the you know the more the more your people will respond to you, uh, listen to you. Um, like you said, even if you don't have all the right answers at the moment, yeah. but that that level of communication, especially now during crisis is is so critical, yeah for sure. Yep. yeah,
3: I, I I say in my crisis leadership class that that you know people, which I define as stakeholders, and we spend lots of time in the class um, thinking through different groups that actually have a value proposition in their relationship with your organization, right? So whether it's customers or employees or, uh, I don't know, investors or regulators, I mean, all those groups have a different kind of value proposition. Um, but I always say that, you know, that, that one in a crisis, people are looking, all people are looking for tangible evidence of leadership. They want to see someone stepping up and demonstrating, you're telling them, uh, I don't have all the answers, but I've got my, my hands are on the wheel. I'm aware of it. We're, we're focused on it. We will get through this. Secondly, all of those people, they want and need leaders to believe in. So it's not just seeing that someone's taken the wheel, they're aware of it, and they're, you know, they're on it, but they want to see that they're doing it in a way that they can trust, that they can have some faith in. And then the third thing is, and I think this is a, a kind of a flawed expectation of a lot of leaders, is that they don't expect you to be perfect, and they don't expect you to know everything. But they do expect you to be out in front, to have the courage to stand up and say, this is what we know, the leadership team and I are on this. We will solve it. And this is the direction that we're going to go together and we're going to get through this thing. And it's just, it's, it's, I think it's as simple as that and as hard as that. But that's yeah. what I think crisis leadership is all about. It's acknowledging that, you know, when the, when the bubble goes up, everybody starts looking around for who's, who's picking up the football and running with it, right? Who's, sta- who's standing yeah. up to take this thing on? And then once you see who it is, your next process is, is that somebody that I can believe in? And if it is, I'm all in. And that's what that's how people behave. And if it's not, they. I mean, it's it's a it's a very critical period right yeah, there, you know. Sure and then it, for for the crisis leadership team, I think it's just this it's this constant battle now of we are this we're doing what we need to do to manage this, and we are the source of the facts, and we commit to keeping you posted and doing our best with your interest in mind, and you know, blah blah, but. Um, but that's, it, it's not rocket science, but it is, it is hard to execute. And it doesn't seem from all of the, the kind of the failed efforts that we're looking at now, it doesn't seem like it's intuitive. As, I, as much as yeah. it seemed like it when I was saying that, and yeah. I think this is what your book does a lot of really well, Bo, is the, you call out, you know, I'm sure there were parts when you were writing your, your manuscript that you were thinking to yourself, but this is so obvious. I don't know if it even yeah. is worth putting in print.
2: Yeah, the oh, you're absolutely right.
3: sure is that common sense is not common action, right? So sometimes you just gotta lay out the common sense and say, look, yeah, I know it's intuitive, but we don't do it. So here's what we, we don't
2: do. don't do it. That's right. It seems it seems so simple, um, but it's not. And I had a um I was the last conference, so it's been it's been last August was the last conference I spoke at. And um, afterwards, you know, I went out to dinner with a couple of other speakers and and people. Uh, that I was familiar with. And we were talking and a gentleman uh, brought up, he made a comment to me, Mike, and it's, it was the, he's like, Bo, when you're, because you're in that environment, right? And you've been in that environment, whether it's at the White House or it was uh, combat or the military, you're, you know, you're, you're in these, you're just in these environments that to you and you're around those people, right? You, it just seems like everybody should just know that's how you should behave and that's how you should set your values. And this is what you should be doing and this, how you should lead during these types of scenarios. And he's like, no, he's like, we don't get that. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. So he he was, he was actually giving me a critique. He's like, we need to hear more of that from you. You know? So he, he's giving me feedback on my, on my work sessions and stuff I was presenting. And he's like, just keep, keep going with that. Keep telling people that more and more and more and more because in your head, you know, you're kind of humble about it because it's just who you are, it's the life you've lived, it's the career you've had. It seems it seems simple. Like you said, it just seems simple. It's like, why don't people get this? But it's it's not. And I think that's the the mission is to try and share that with as many people as possible and and really look at, you know, behaviors are changing, right? So people are 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 having to respond to this, and and they're going to respond in some way, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, makes me wonder in the future uh, as we come through this, uh, if companies will will change their values, if they will actually look at them and and say, hey, you know, we didn't we didn't handle this well, maybe this isn't isn't how we should have behaved, maybe we need to make some changes, or hey, these weren't our values before, but based on this, we did some really, you know, we really hunkered down and came through this, and we all banded together, and maybe we need to. Maybe we need to emulate that, not just during crisis, but you know, keep that now as a as a new standard on how we how we communicate, how we treat each other, how we prepare, uh, and so forth. Yeah, I've been trying
3: to I've been trying to help people think as we work through this this COVID pandemic. I've been trying to get people to think not just about you know what are you learning from this, how are you dealing with this, how has this impacted your life? Because I do think there's value in just kind of reflecting on you know, how did you respond? How have you been thinking about this? How did you deal with it? Um, but I also try to get people thinking about, so who are the other folks that are really counting on you to help them? You know, your family, yeah. your children, your parents, uh, your neighbors, uh, you know, your students, if you're in school, your employees, if you're running a business. Um, and, I, and for me, I find it really helpful to think, Hey, it's okay that I think about me. It's natural. That's how we're wired. We're, we're going to take care of ourselves. But it's really helpful for me to think about how much I can support other people as they work through this, because it just reminds you that, that kind of other people's perspective is really important too. And that gets me to think about, you know, one of the core values at JetBlue, as you know, Bo, because we, we talked yeah. about this, is caring and this whole idea of, well, what does caring, you know, really mean? And it's great to have that as a corporate value. I think lots of corporations have that as a value. I'm not convinced that lots of them really believe that or know what that means or can demonstrate it on a regular basis. But I know at JetBlue for a fact that when we laid out this caring as one of our values, the idea was um, we have a number of different types of stakeholders and they depend on us in different ways. And our job in caring for them is to make sure that we understand and appreciate their perspective and do what we can to take care of that, not us, but them. And that just made it really easy. And again, simple, really easy and simple to say, I know what caring is. Caring is that of course I take care of me and my family, but I also take care of you and my colleagues and my customers. And, and, and it does help us have the conversation about the fact that, you know, because different stakeholders have different interests and they don't always align perfectly. Um, it is hard to make everybody happy all the time. So you are going to have to make some trade-offs and, and you're not going to be able to make everybody happy all the time. And it's just another one of those realities of kind of the VUCA environment, right? You just yeah. can't, you can't do it. You so can't you do it.
2: Can. That's right. Wow.
3: Luke, you look like you got 8,000 questions going through your head. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I,
1: I'm sitting, I'm learning so much right now. Like I'm just sitting here like processing things through my mind. So like, <clears throat> Number one is I guess you're still
3: you're when still you sack th- on the twenty miles in a minute, aren't you?
1: You know, I always <laughs> I'm always not that question. I'm trying to move past it. Um, but I was thinking about like even g- going back to the training, like how many people don't do this in their personal lives at all? So like I think they get a taste of it from companies that they work for, yeah. um, or for different experiences. But when you look at things like marriage, for example, 50% divorce rate. Yeah in the United States at any given time i don't think anybody practices on their marriage until they get to therapy and it might be too far gone by that point so i'm like almost thinking i'm running through things in my mind like personal life handling personal catastrophes or even small ones big ones and how you know i could even train for those things moving forward so that i have a plan cuz now that i'm talking to you Like I like in my personal life, Mike, I really have a plan for zero catastrophes right now. Yeah. And I haven't trained for them at all. Yeah. And it's a miracle that I'm still on this planet right now, just kind of winging it out there. So that was one of the points. And then and then one of the the other point is like I think Bo, by the way, I think we need to move this podcast up a little bit and probably drop it next week because it's so relevant for what's going on right now. Yeah. And you know, I talked to my friends who work for different companies. You know, I've just heard a lot on the streets right now how about how people are handling the pandemic. None of them are doing what you're suggesting. Absolutely none of them. Some of them, like at most, you might see like weekly updates at best, even though there's no information. And I'm seeing just amongst my friends and acquaintances the big loss of productivity just because of that unknown sure. that's happening in that little week long hammock that's happening. They're spending more time thinking and worrying than they are solving the problems and moving the business forward. And ultimately, like I would even go as far as to say, well, it's not the pandemic that could ruin the company per se. It's the lost productivity and you know, just having somebody's mind elsewhere than on their job and moving the company through it.
3: Yeah. No, I think that I I think that anyone listening to this podcast that has watched Governor Cuomo even once Mm -hmm. and has thought about the what he's trying to do or, or, or how they feel when they listen to him talking about one aspect or another of this thing. If they really thought about kind of what we've talked about today and just this, the, 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 the comfort level of knowing that there is this cadence of communication. And yeah, I know tomorrow's message may not be that different than today, but maybe it will be. And if, and if he doesn't, if he did every other day, I, I would posit that if he did every other day and not every day like he's doing, it right. would be much less than 50% effect. I mean, it would be horribly ineffective because mm-hmm. it would feel more like a, when I got something to tell you, I'll get on the TV and, and do it as opposed to very early on in a, in a crisis being the leader that says, Hey, every morning at 8 or every afternoon at 5 p.m. or whatever it is, you're going to get, even if it's just five minutes from me, I will be here. I will tell you what I know, what's different, uh, if anything's changed about where we're heading. And some days there's going to be nothing, but you can count on seeing me every day. I think that would be a huge change.
1: I love that. I love that. And if there's no news and nothing's going to change, guess what? Let's move on. Let's go get, it, get on with our jobs. And then people's head can be in the right space when they do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I advise, I advise leaders uh, that I talk to and then when they ask me my opinion on things and how they should be communicating, I'm like, if you're having a, if you're having a hard time communicating and you're asking me when you should communicate, I'm going to take you back to a very simple concept and you're going to start your day every single day with your team. I don't care if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, but, but call it your, your morning, your morning update, right? And and you're just good and you got to do it every single day. You know, like you said, if you don't have anything new, you don't then you don't have anything new. But it's the you're getting in that habit. They see you. You're out front. You're leading. You're listening. Give them an opportunity to speak if they have questions, whatever the case might be. But do that every single day. I always loved that. Uh, Looking back, uh, it it was phenomenal. Even when I was traveling, uh, traveling the the country with on uh, presidential teams doing communications for for the president's. We would, you know, the, whether it's it's the communications guys, the White House staff, the Secret Service, it was day and night, right? It's not a crisis, but it's the same. It's a very, you know, you got six days and the president arrives and you you it's a zero defect environment. So there's a lot of stuff to do and, and lots of people on the ground to coordinate. And, and And that all went off. I think a lot of that was due to not just because we were trained and we had the skills and that's what we fell back on and we had our checklists. We had all that stuff but literally every morning, every night, there's an update. You're in the you're in the room with the leadership and maybe you know, obviously from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. the next morning, probably not a lot changed, but the point is that team's back together. Everybody knows what's going on. You know, nobody's left in the dark and that was ev- every single day. And you just you develop confidence and trust in that team and, and just yeah, you're just bringing it all together.
3: Now, may, now, okay. some folks listening might be thinking, "Well, geez, it it seems like every day it's it's pretty frequent." You know, would you really need to do that every day? Um, as you were talking, I was reminded of my time in the emergency command center at JetBlue, and and you know, sadly, we did activate the command center quite a few times, not just nine eleven or the Northeast U.S. blackouts. If you remember back to the blackout times, yeah. Or you know, various aircraft emergencies where there was a you know potential for something bad, we would activate the command center. And my job as the as the leader of the command center was to A, you know, make sure everybody, all the 24, you know, VPs or you know executives who each had a workstation that they were able to to kind of accomplish their work. Not that I was standing over them with a whip, but just right. getting in the way. Um, yep. can, I help, can I help you get information? Can I help you coordinate with that group over there that's doing something similar?
2: Exactly. Um,
3: but my second responsibility, which may, if I think about it, have been my first responsibility, is we would every hour, my job, and we did this at the three quarters of an hour because on the hour that's when all the news headlines would come out, so we we didn't want to be talking then. But at fifteen minutes before the hour, my job was to was to get everybody's attention. And say, first of all, everybody breathe. Just yeah. breathe. Okay. Everyone take a deep breath and relax. Is everyone doing okay? Okay. Can we, can, does anyone need a break? Do we need to spell you? Okay. Now we've got 24 stations in the command center. We could go one at a time through everybody, but is there, are there two or three stations that could really use some coordination help? Now is your chance. Everyone yeah. else be quiet. Listen up, and we right. spent 5 minutes on that every hour, but I heard more positive feedback after these crises for not, you know, not being directive of who should be doing what, but the fact that every hour somebody would say, everybody be quiet. Breathe. Yeah. Just breathe. It's okay. Right? Yeah. We'll we'll get through this and that's uh I love it. you know. So that sometimes the best thing you can do is just you know, give everybody the group hug, and although from six feet away now, apparently,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> uh,
3: and just let's okay. We're you know how many times have I said in my life uh, life is great because I don't have to come. Uh, I'm not getting shot at, and I don't have to go land on the carrier in the dark.
2: So there you it's go. All,
3: it's all downhill from there.
2: That's right.
1: Absolutely. Now I got so many. Now I got so many questions about <laughs> landing on the carrier in the dark. <laughs>
2: Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. That's, I'm sure that's scary.
3: It's It, it builds character. Yeah. I bet. <laughs>
2: yeah. I remember landing in Iraq on a helicopter. Uh, and I write about this in the book because it, it was just one of those moments, man, where the, the helicopter is dropping me and my team off. And I was the leader of the team, highest ranking one. And, you know, it was it was middle of the night, pitch black. And of course, you know, you got to you know, you're not going to have lights on, right? Because then you're an easy target in the middle of the night. So we didn't know where we were. And I mean, that helicopter, I mean, it no more hit the hit the ground. I think it barely hit the ground, hovering, throw your bags out, jump out. It's gone. We're in the middle of this airfield outside of Tikrit, Iraq. And I kid you not, bullets were flying. And it's like, I mean, it's like, holy cow. And you, you, you hear it and you don't know where it's at. You can't see anything. And it's like, what do I do? Right. Yeah. You better... You you better have uh you better have a good reaction because you got people dependent on you uh, and li- lives are on the line so I get it it's great it's it's fascinating conversation Mike we really appreciate your time we could we could keep you on we could keep you on all night long um, it's true yeah yeah we'll have you back you know we we had a a guest last night uh, that we recorded with uh, Zara Northover uh, she is an Olympic athlete. Uh, used to be, um, she was actually a brand ambassador for the university of Michigan for a few years. Oh,
3: great.
2: Uh, Yeah. She's an Eastern Michigan grad school graduate. Um, she is the first female athlete out of Northeastern university out of Boston to become an Olympic athlete. Um, so just an amazing energetic individual, um, bringing it every day. Uh, I'm sure she'll love listening to this, to this episode, um, and driving into crisis, crisis leadership for sure. Um, Luke, any parting thoughts?
1: I I don't know. Michigan keeps popping up on this podcast. guys. (laughs) We've had some great people from Michigan. We had Jared Wilson, uh, who's one of your safeties. Now he's a starter for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Michigan has just taken over
2: right now. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll give you some insight. So Jared was our second episode, uh, Mike, and uh, asked him specifically. He did his last year, his last year, his senior year, was uh, when Jim Harbaugh came in as the coach, mm-hmm. and you know Luke and I have mentioned this to a lot of people, but I mean it kind of started us on this thing with uh, setting routines and writing things down and 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 all that kind of stuff. And um, we asked him, you know, what was the most important thing you learned from Jim Harbaugh? And his answer shocked me. I think it shocked Luke. Um, yep. And he said he he taught me about battle rhythm. Yeah, you know and it, it wasn't something about football or or how to you know play the position of a safety the best to his ability it was battle rhythm mm-hmm. and it, and it just it started us on this whole track and as we've talked with so many amazing guests um about having having routines having checklists having structure having the battle rhythm getting yourself in a place where you can open your emergency preparedness plan and actually execute mm-hmm. right it's all part of whether it's a corporate battle rhythm, individual battle rhythm. It's just so incredibly important, and we're getting that from athletes, from executives, from you know mental health therapists that we've had on the show. Uh, it's just been fantastic.
3: Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, can I leave you with a uh, with a definition of leadership? Since we've been talking yeah. a lot about that's- leadership in the COVID nineteen uh, yep. kind of context,
2: please. Yes. So so give us your definition, and then say that's a wrap. So then we'll all know. Right.
3: So, uh, I got this from Tom Peters. Uh, Tom Peters, one of my favorite, uh, authors, leadership coaches, gurus, one of the, uh, the founders of, uh, the 7S framework of McKinsey. So he was, you know, created the 7S framework. Um, he wrote a book called The Excellence Dividend, which I believe, uh, is the best business book that I've read in the last 15 years. Uh, I don't get royalties for that. Um, Uh, I actually bought a copy for everyone on my team. I bought 150 copies uh, of it uh, for my team at Ross. Um, And Tom uh, had a definition of leadership that I heard, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago that I really believe in. And Tom said that uh, great leadership is creating the space for people to do great things that they couldn't have done without the space. And what I really like about that definition is a couple of things. One is it tells you that it's not about you. It's about creating the space for your people. Mm -hmm. And it's also tells me that it's not about micromanaging them or telling them what to do. It's about creating opportunities for them to do really awesome, great things Mm -hmm. and then learn through the process to maybe eventually even be able to do things better than you do them. And that's okay. What a great gift as a uh, leader. So I will leave you all with that. It's been a lot of fun, and let's uh, just call it a wrap.